Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, you came and dwelt among us, and the nations indeed flocked to you, and they witnessed your glorious presence, and you taught them, and they received instruction, and that instruction has gone out into all the earth. And so here we are this morning, ready to receive your instruction. Would you speak? Would you illuminate our path that we might walk in your light and live? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Incarnation. My name is John. I'm the pastor here. Glad to be celebrating this first uh, Sunday of Advent with you. We're entering a new season, right? Things are looking different. I've seen some of your houses because I follow you on Instagram. And I know that there are trees up where there were not trees before and lights and all those kinds of things. Not only in our homes, right? Parks are starting to look different. Streets are starting to look different. Shops are starting to look different. It's a season of preparation, but with the preparation, things are already starting to be different than they were before. Things here are different as well, aren't they? We've gone from green to purple, gone from Trinity to incarnation and today. And we've entered the season of Advent. Advent is a hope-filled season of repentance and preparation for the coming of our Lord. The word Advent just means coming or arrival. That's what the word means. And if you don't know much about Advent, that's perfectly fine. I don't think I knew anything about Advent until at least the age of 21, when I had moved to Berlin and started seeing these reefs and people talking about Advent, and then I learned a little bit about it. But even then, I'm not sure that I understood too much about it and how it was connected to Christmas in the church calendar. There are four Sundays of Advent, and we could think of maybe Advent as one long play or drama, and we could think of it as a, it's a four-act play. There are four parts to it, and each act is a little different, but they come together to tell one Advent story. And so if you're new to Advent, or maybe you just feel like, I'm just not even ready for Advent, I'd say that's okay, that's fine. Like any good play, I hope the drama sucks you in. I hope that as you witness the drama of Advent, as you see the scenes unfold, that like any good play, you find yourself in the story. And maybe you'll find that the story of Advent has been your story all along, and that your very hopes and dreams and fears and failures and joys and longings are all here too. And hopefully this story will help us make sense of all of our stories. And perhaps all of our stories can bleed into one. Now I want to do a quick sketch of the act one that we find ourselves in this morning. The first scene is preparing for the day when the Messiah comes. And this was our text that Andrew read in Isaiah, right? Isaiah gives a vision of what things are going to be like in the messianic kingdom, but it doesn't just stay with the vision. 
That vision comes with a call to action, an invitation, right? Isaiah shows him a picture of the future and then says, come then, let us walk in the light. It calls us into a preparation for what is to come. So that's scene one. And then if we skip over to scene three, in Matthew, what Deacon Dow read for us, it's preparing for the day when the Messiah will come again. And in that text, people are wondering when the day will be. And Jesus tells them, hey, no one actually knows when the day is. Even the son doesn't know. But that day is going to be like in the day of Noah, when Noah entered the ark. And he says on that day, it was just like any other day. In other words, people weren't really expecting it because the world seemed as it had always been, right? They were marrying and giving in marriage and everything seemed like it. And Jesus brings it to a point in verse 42. He says this, because you don't know when it's going to happen, you just need to keep awake because you don't know when the Lord is coming. And he gives an analogy. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Saying things like awake and be ready is really just another way of saying, let us walk in the light. It is saying, live as if you knew today that you were going to have an encounter with the Messiah. And then in Act 1, Scene 2, the Romans reading that I read from the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman church, he says this, it is already the moment for you to wake from sleep. Don't you know what time it is? It's time to get up and get dressed and to do what? To put on the armor of light. And let us walk decently in the day, which is a lot like saying, keep awake and you have to be ready. And it's like what Isaiah is saying. At some point, God is going to shine a light on the nations. And so let us walk in the light. Wake up. Get ready. Step into the light. These are Advent invitations. If you're not ready, and most of us probably aren't, prepare yourselves for what's ahead. The church expects that we might not be ready, right? That's why we have the season of Advent. It's a time to get ready. Maybe you got ready last year, but now you find yourself unready again. That's okay. We have a season of preparation to get ready. And the season of Advent kind of occupies this space My Venn diagram is getting drowned out by the light of the fluorescence. Um, But it's a beautiful Venn diagram. I wish you could see it on my screen. So nice. There's this middle part that comes in the middle. And that is where Advent kind of takes place, right? It takes place in this middle part where we go back into the Old Testament prophecies. And we remember what it was like to long for a day when the Messiah would come. And then we also read in the New Testament readings about how the Messiah has some unfinished business to do, right? Like a lot of what Isaiah said actually came true in Jesus already, but then there are parts of it that are left unfinished, right? And that is where we find ourselves in Advent. This kind of overlap, there's so much in common, and we find ourselves in this space during Advent. 
So that's a quick overview of Advent Act 1. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time together in the sermon focusing on Act 1, Scene 1, Isaiah's vision and Isaiah 2. As the curtains are pulled back on the opening scene, we see this beautiful scene that Isaiah has painted for us. In many ways, it's a world that we are very familiar with. And in some ways, it's a world that we have never quite seen before. Here, the blue of the sky is bluer than we have ever imagined it. The green, the green of the gra- glass, grass is almost glowing. It is more alive than we ever knew grass could be. Now, I am farsighted. I wear contacts. And if I didn't have my contacts in right now, I would not be able to recognize hardly anyone in this room. And I can remember the first time I got glasses when I was about eight years old. I didn't even really understand that I needed glasses, but then I got these glasses. And then on the way home, the thing that stood out to me the most were the leaves on the trees. Because until that point, as long as I can remember, trees were just this kind of blurry green thing. And I thought I knew what trees looked like. But all of a sudden, trees came into focus. And I could see each individual leaf and the contours and the sharpness of the leaves. I thought I knew what leaves looked like. But suddenly, they had come back into focus. And then when I was 19 years old, I was visiting my friend Hannah Landry in Derry, North Ireland, and I took a flight, a plane from London to Belfast, and then from Belfast, I took a bus, a short bus ride over to Derry. And I can remember seeing the green of the hills in Ireland. And up until that point, I thought I knew what grass looked like. I thought I had seen grass every day of my life. But I had never seen grass so green as I had seen it in Ireland. It was almost magical, but instead it was actually real. It was actually more real than any grass I had ever seen. It seemed as if all grass was trying to be the grass there in Ireland. And this is the kind of setting that Isaiah has painted for us as the curtains roll back. It is a beautiful world, one recognizably ours, yet somehow more beautiful almost magical and yet more real than we already know. It's the world we sometimes refer to as the kingdom of God or simply the kingdom. It's the kingdom of the Messiah where Israel's king is king of the world. In some ways, it's the best vision of a world we already know. And we also know that it's a world that is impossible and will never come true unless God decides to make it come true. Let's take a look at Isaiah's scene in Isaiah 2. Verse 2 says this, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. In the world in which we live, the highest places are not the holiest places, right? We can think of Wall Street or the Pentagon or Palo Alto, the powers of money and war and technology. These are the powers that captivate the attention of the nations. 
These are the shining lights that we are drawn to. But a different day is coming. Another light will shine even brighter. The Lord's house perched on Mount Zion, which if you've ever been there, you know it's not really a mount. It's more of like Zion Hill. And the text gives us this imagination that this little hill Zion is somehow going to be raised up higher than any of the others. In God's future, the holiest ground becomes the highest ground. And suddenly God's presence captivates the nations. The text says all the nations shall stream to it. All nations. It's a multicultural, a multi-ethnic, a multilingual vision. It's colorful, like the beautiful city that we live in. But only it isn't the American dream that has drawn them in. Verse 3 says, many people shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The nations have gathered for life-giving instruction. They have exhausted their own attempts of doing things their own ways. And they are finally ready to learn life from the author of life. But then as we read further, we learn that it's not just instruction that the nations will be receiving. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. And so they can beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No longer will there be a need to settle disputes with war. In this new world, God is going to be the just judge that settles disputes. Listening to NPR, the morning edition, which is normally like the most happy version that you can find on the radio for news, still this Saturday, it was all mass shootings and AR-15s and Russian nuclear missiles uh, that were repurposed to deliver less lethal warheads as into the Ukraine as Russia's arsenal is depleted we might ask ourselves, what would the news be about if it were not about violence and war and famine? In a world like that, in a world where the nations are looking to Israel for instruction on life, well, they could beat their swords into plowshares. They could turn their spears into instruments for reaping the harvest. The very instruments of death become the instruments which provide life-giving nourishment. The $773 billion budget of the Pentagon can be redirected towards feeding those who are experiencing famine and food insecurity. AR-15s can be recycled for their aluminum to become shipping containers to feed the world. Russian missiles can be melted down and repurposed for the chassis of school buses. I would guess it's a world we already long for, 
And it's also a world that so many of us have already stopped believing in, just as we have stopped believing in Santa Claus. Admittedly, it's a world that is impossible. It's one we will never see on our own power. And yet, we find ourselves longing for it. I have been guilty of dismissing the secular, what I call Bing Crosby Christmas, as, uh, you know, the Christmas we all know in America, as sentimental and antithetical to the season we call Advent. But I am starting to wonder, what if American secular Christmas and Advent have something in common? And that is longing. Longing for something just like this world, something very real, and yet something just beyond our reach. That sentimental feeling we get when our home is decorated and the Christmas tree is shimmering and our family is gathered around the fire and Johnny Mathis is serenading us through the smart speaker. I wonder if all that feeling is meant to point us to the kind of world we were actually meant to desire. A world where different types of people gather together in unity and in love. A safe world dominated by joy and peace and wholeness. A world where it's okay to idealize innocence of childhood because people will no longer learn war because the nations have flocked to the light we call Messiah. If ever you have longed for a day like this, then you too may be able to enter the season of Advent. We've already said that Advent is about preparing for the day when the Messiah will come. And there's some critical parts to this participation. One, the very first part is what we have done, is rejoicing in the vision of what will come when the Messiah comes, right? This beautiful vision that Isaiah has shown us. So step one is just to stare at it and to rejoice and to contemplate it. But it won't be long after doing that that we have to go move on to step two. And in step two, we begin to lament the world in which we actually live. And we get to have what we might call cognitive dissonance. God says it's going to be like that, but it's so not like that now, and it seems impossible to bring about. And that leads us to the third part, which is that we need to learn to long for the day when the Messiah will come back. Advent is about longing for a new day when the Messiah will come. And friends, that is an act of both faith and an act of hope to do in our world, to believe that Jesus will do what he said he would do, and to have faith and to keep the hope. So Isaiah's vision should cause us to see the world, see this new world that God's going to make possible, and should create in us a longing to inhabit such a world. But for Isaiah, it does not stop there with the vision. Isaiah's vision is an invitation to action. 
He paints this picture, a scene of a preferred, God's preferred future for humanity. It's a vision of hope. But although it's a hope for the future, future hope has the power to reorient our present. It's a hope for the future, but this future hope has the power to reorient our present. Isaiah is talking to them about the wonders day to come and how they're going to melt down these weapons and make forming equipment. And then he suddenly flips into the present in verse 5 and says this, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light. There's going to be a day when all the nations are going to come and are going to walk in the light. So let us begin walking into that future today. This is a great summary of Advent. We need a vision of the kingdom. We need a vision of God's preferred future for his people. And then we need that vision that comes with an invitation. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Every leaf is going to come into focus. The grass is going to be greener than you have ever seen it. Every instrument of death turned into the instrument that gives life when the nations encounter God's presence and his light goes out into all the world. And so then, let us walk in the light today. I wonder what this invitation could mean to you this morning. The invitation to walk in the light. If, as Jesus has told us, that he could return at any moment, unexpected, what might you wish would change in your life before you encountered the Messiah? How might you need to realign your temporal passions with God's preferred future? Paul gets into this, doesn't he? In Romans 13 that we read earlier. He says, hey, you guys know what time it is. And you know it's the moment for you to wake up from your sleep. Salvation's even nearer when we first became believers. Jesus is even closer to coming back than when we first got into this, guys. The night is far gone. The day is already near. In other words, we've already seen so much of the salvation. There's so much light already to walk in. And so we got to throw off this old darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's start walking in the day, not in reveling and excess drinking, not in sexual immorality or indulgent excess or in quarreling and jealousy writing silly things on social media. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus. Like, put him on like you put on your clothes. Get out of bed, put on the Lord Jesus, and make no provision for the flesh. Quit feeding your flesh. The evil desires. It's like we prayed in the collect this morning, right? Almighty God, give us grace to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
this invitation to walk in the light certainly has something to do with turning from sin, right? And that's why we're, why we're reading this verse from Romans, and that's why we pray this collect. It's a season of repentance in preparation. But I wonder if it's not only that, the invitation to walk in the light, that it's, if it's even bigger. I don't know if you guys have ever driven up to a campsite late at night, and you can't really see much, and so you have a little headlamp or a flashlight, and you make your tent, and then, of course, at some point, you go to sleep. And then you wake up in the morning, unzip that tent, and you walk out, and you see what's actually there, right? It's usually whatever you came to see. There's some mountain in the distance or some beautiful field or something that you're looking at. Maybe it's the forest. And I wonder if this invitation for us to walk in the light is something like just simply unzipping that tent and just taking a look around our life and just naming, hey, what's actually here? What is it that's here? Let's put it all out in the light and see what things look like. Maybe it's an invitation to see what's really there in your life, the good and the bad and the ugly. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, a day of gratitude. And I wonder if, for me, maybe for some of you, our failure of gratitude is actually just a failure to bring what's good in our life to the light to acknowledge like what is actually there. And when I lack gratitude, it has, probably has something to do with not being real about just how blessed I am to have a family, to have a home to live in. I have a car to drive. I've got a church family that I can call my home. I wonder if for some of us, being a light is, is naming not only the bad, but being able to name what is good. And then I wonder if there are some parts of your life that perhaps are not so bad or so good either. They're just not exactly how you hoped it would be. Parts of your life that remind you that you aren't all you hoped you would become. And there are parts like this that we can hide away too and try to keep from the light. And I'm wondering what it might look like for some of us to bring that out into the light, to step into the light of Christ. The light has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are still waiting, but two-thirds of the work is already accomplished. The light of the sun is already shining bright. Wake up. Get ready. Step into the light. Amen.